Support for Kansas City Today comes from Grandma's Office Catering. One bank teller instead of the usual five. Slow, fast food lines. Simply not enough staff. Grandma's Office Catering avoided the mass exodus with the respect, appreciation, better wages, and now health insurance. That's how Grandma continues to wow. Grandma'sCatering.com. This is Kansas City Today. I'm Nomi Nujia-Dean. Today is Thursday, April 28th. Coming up, Samantha Bishop wasn't offered drug treatment until she was in a Kansas prison. The treatment helped her beat addiction, but her journey through the criminal justice system only made recovery harder for a woman raising her young daughter. But I feel like I miss a lot of milestones. I missed uh, her first lost tooth. I missed her learning to tie her shoes, learning to read. Um, It's just a plethora of things that I missed out on. We'll hear how people are falling through the cracks of the legal system in Kansas. Plus, a massive project will bring clean electricity to millions of Americans, but it has to cut through private land in Kansas and Missouri first. But first, some headlines. The Treasury Department handed Kansas trucking company Yellow Corporation a huge loan in 2020 so it could continue handling freight for the Defense Department during the pandemic. The Midwest Newsroom's Steve Vakrat reports that a new report claims Trump administration officials intervened to help Yellow get that loan. Treasury officials decided that Yellow qualified for a loan program meant to help keep companies considered critical to national security afloat during the coronavirus pandemic. Yellow, which has struggled financially for years, got a $700 million loan in 2020. But a report out Wednesday from a House subcommittee investigating the matter says that Defense Department officials had doubted whether Yellow was as important to national security as they made it seem. Despite that, Trump administration officials were said to have intervened to make sure that Yellow got the loan. Mark Kasowitz, an attorney representing Yellow, called the report's allegations demonstrably false. Kansas lawmakers have restarted medical marijuana talks with little time left in the session. Jim McLean of the Kansas News Service reports the discussions come after weeks of inaction. A small group of lawmakers is meeting to work out differences between a medical cannabis bill passed by the Kansas House last year and a version written by a Senate committee this year but never considered by the full Senate. Both measures would establish tight rules for the cultivation, sale, and use of medical marijuana to treat roughly 20 conditions, including AIDS, cancer, seizure disorders, and several that cause chronic pain. Doctors would need a state certificate to recommend the drug to patients. Kansas, Nebraska, and Idaho are the only states that haven't legalized medical cannabis. The number of Kansans on drug probation sentences has grown by two-thirds in a decade. During the pandemic, that number went down because courts were closed. But addiction specialists say more people are struggling. Blaze Mesa of the Kansas News Service reports the state's criminal justice system is struggling to keep up. In a park in Waukini, Kansas, about 30 minutes west of Hayes, Samantha Bishop is showing me her favorite playground. Tic-tac-toe area to play tic-tac-toe. It's the usual, slides, swings, and things to climb on, and her daughter's favorite. It's a big, giant rock that has little crevices for you to, you know, put your hands and feet to climb up on top of. And This park was one of the last places she was with her daughter before Bishop went to prison. She's with her daughter again, but only after missing things like a first loose tooth, learning to read, or tie her shoes. Bishop served just over two years for selling drugs, something she did to support her habit. Because of her conviction, she did not get addiction treatment. Bishop says the Kansas criminal justice system only made it tougher to fight her addiction. It's hard to explain to a, you know, a five-year-old, hey, so mommy's going to be gone, and 
you know, her idea of it was like, well, why were you bad again? Because, you know, I went to jail and then I came home and then she was like, but why were you bad again? And it's no, it's still the same bad. Kansas has hit and miss collections of programs for drug addicts in trouble with the law. Prison offers substance abuse recovery classes, but less than 10% of the prison population can enroll at one time, even though two out of every three inmates enter the system with a drug problem. One crisis response team pairs counselors with police, but it exists only in Hutchinson. Drug courts offer teams of people dedicated to supporting someone's recovery, but only 12 counties statewide have such courts. The whole point of the program is to divert people away from the prison system. That's Kira Johnson. She coordinates a state-run addiction program that pays for up to 18 months of drug treatment. Its strict requirements mean about one in three people on drug probation sentences get the help. Too many convictions for possession also disqualify someone from aid. The program is state-funded, and Johnson says they have to use state dollars efficiently. With any program, especially uh, programs that are responsibly using state funding, you have to make decisions about who's eligible and how many times and how we're going to use the funding that's available to us. Martoni Cowan is an inmate at the Winfield Correctional Facility. He got no addiction treatment. Cowan had struggled with addiction before, but he got clean. He got a job, and then his mom died. I was going through a dark point in my life, and, and I just relapsed, and uh, one time turned into two times, and two times turned into plenty, and then it was all too much. Cowan is sober and plans to remain clean. He is frustrated he was sent to prison before being offered addiction help. Both Cowan and Bishop can be considered success stories. Two people caught up in drugs that are now clean, but everybody, taxpayers included, would have been better off if they went to rehab rather than prison. Critics say Kansas has an unforgiving system that puts too much emphasis on punishment. For instance, the state prohibits drug felons from getting food assistance when they get out. Kansas also has one of the strictest drug offender registries in the country. In Joaquini, Bishop has to check in with police every few months, turn over her social media handles, and renew her driver's license yearly. If I had been given resources and a chance, if somebody had stopped me and said, hey, you need help, let me help you, chances are that I probably would have turned away and made different choices for my life. The state legislature considered removing some barriers, but ultimately did not. The lawmakers say they will continue to work towards reform, which gives Bishop hope things will be different in the future. For the Kansas News Service, I am Blaze Mesa in Joaquini. The Kansas News Service is a collaboration of KCUR, KMUW, Kansas Public Radio, and High Plains Public Radio. It reports on health, the many factors that influence it, and their connection to public policy. The Grain Belt Express is an 800-mile transmission line that will cut through the Midwest, bringing renewable energy west to east across the country. But building the line means using eminent domain to cut through private property in Kansas, Missouri, and other states. Flatland KC reporter Cami Coons wrote about the project for a collaboration between KCUR and other nonprofit media outlets in Kansas City. She stopped by the studio to tell me more about her story. Before we get started with this conversation, I just wanted to let you know Cami did misspeak a couple times. The Grain Belt Express would generate the equivalent of about seven Hawthorne coal plants and would connect it with the SPP, MISO, and PJM grids. 
So to start off, can you explain what the Grain Belt Express is? Sure. So the Grain Belt Express is a proposed transmission line that would stretch all the way from outside of Dodge City, Kansas, so western Kansas, um, across the state of Missouri, Illinois, and then it would end just as it enters Indiana. So effectively, it would connect three of the largest uh, power grids in the U.S. That would be the SPP in the western, the MISO grid um, that serves Missouri and kind of this middle area, and then the SPJ grid that serves the eastern portion of the state. So the idea of the transmission line is that it would move wind energy generated out in Kansas all the way to these other grids so that more folks could benefit from cheap renewable energy generated in Kansas where it is exceptionally windy. So what kind of environmental impact is the Grain Belt Express expected to have? Yeah, so the Grain Belt Express would be able to transmit up to 4,000 megawatts of power, which is the equivalent to, I believe, about 16 of our Hawthorne coal plants just outside of Kansas City here. So that is a massive amount of power. It's enough to power 1.6 million homes for a year. So it would have a really big impact in in that notion because rather than sourcing all of that from coal or fossil fuel uh, sources, we'd be able to pull that energy from wind-generated areas instead um, or wind-generated energy instead. Yeah, so what kind of impact would this have on private landowners? So there's a big debate right now between landowners that this would affect because the project has gained approval from the Missouri Public Service Commission that labels it as a public utility. So essentially that means it has the right to eminent domain, which is condemnation of land if they're unable to reach um, voluntary agreements with landowners. So a lot of landowners are worried about the scar that this will create across their land. Basically it would be a 150 foot wide easement through various portions of of a person's land. For some people it might just be one tower that they have on their land and these would be like 130 to 160 foot tall towers with the power line line connecting between those every quarter of a mile. One landowner I talked to said that it would go through five miles of her property, another one a mile, and and then another one that I talked to who was for the line would only have one tower on his land. So I think that kind of changes the aspect that people have to it. But a big reason that people are against the project is because they feel like it is a project made by a corporation, a private corporation, Invenergy is the name of the the company that owns the line, um, who's basically just going to make a ton of money by selling energy off the line to these grids Um, and I think they're kind of afraid as Midwesterners often feel that they're being treated as a flyover state that their energy consumption isn't important that Missourians won't benefit from this project but rather we're generating it we're carrying the burden of having the line on the land here in Missouri and Kansas but the the benefit of the line is going to eastern cities and bigger cities. So earlier you used the word easement which I hear a lot in government and land use related stories. Can you explain what that is? Yeah, so an easement is just a portion of the land that would be under this condemnation. So it wouldn't be a whole acre. It would just be the 150 foot wide easement across select distance. Um, so it's it's not that big. And then it really would just be the towers that would be on, on the land. So Greenbelt claims that landowners would be able to farm or graze cattle or whatever they do on their land around the towers. Anytime there's a structure in a field, it obviously makes it more difficult to, you can't fly like planes to seed things or to spray a field. Can't do that anymore. 
it would take longer to have a tractor come through and kind of navigate around those posts. So there are some concerns with that. So how do landowners feel about all of this? I think landowners have a really special connection to their land. A lot of the people that I talk to for this story, this land has been in their family for generations. Their grandparents were born on their land, their grandpa bought the land a long time ago, and now they've inherited it. And so it's kind of, they see it as their legacy. And anyone who is a farmer really takes the concept of stewardship really seriously. And whatever they do to their land, they want to make it better than it was when they got it. They want it to be at the highest quality that it can be. They want to respect nature and kind of what they're doing to the land. So seeing something huge like this that would cut through, um, I think a lot of people are really worried about the impact that this will have on their land. I mean, monetarily, property values, but also just kind of spiritually, if you will, because of this really strong stewardship that they have towards the land. Why should people care about this story? I think they should care about it because I think you can put yourself in the shoes of either party. If you were a landowner and your whole, your family has spent their entire life farming this land, growing your property, growing your business, and then all of a sudden some private corporation says we're going to put this line through it and you don't necessarily see how you're going to benefit from it, just because a tower is running through your property doesn't mean you're guaranteed to get power off that line. Yes, you are going to get payments for the towers and for the lines, and Invenergy is compensating folks very fairly at 110% of the fair market value. But ultimately, they have to look out at the line every single day. So I really empathize with landowners. But to the same extent, we've seen energy crises. We see the effects that fossil fuels have had on our environment. So it seems like we have to take really drastic steps with projects like this in order to really combat the effects that we're seeing of climate change. So what's next for this project? So right now there's a bill in the Missouri legislature which would effectively strip Grain Belt Express of their public utility status. Um, unless they made certain provisions to the project, which would be requiring 50% of the transmission capacity be left in Missouri, which wouldn't make sense for what the project is, really. Um, It also would increase landowner payments to 150% of the fair market value. It would require that to receive approval as a public utility, projects like this would have to get approval from commissioners in every single county that the line crossed. So that would mean any two county commissioners basically would be able to say no to the project. But the problem with that bill is that it would retroactively strip Grain Belt of its status, um, which would basically just lead to a bunch of litigation and it would probably not be good. But it could prevent future projects like this from affecting landowners in the way that Grain Belt would. And then if that doesn't happen and Grain Belt gets to continue on, once they get all of their contracts finished with Illinois, then they would start construction. Another one of the benefits that Grain Belt would have for Kansas and Missouri would be that they're pulling from local contractors and they would be employing locally for all the construction along the line. Cami Coons is a reporter for Flatland KC. You can read her story on the Grain Belt Express at flatlandkc.org. This story is part of a collaboration between KCUR and other nonprofit media outlets in Kansas City focusing on climate change. This is Kansas City Today. I'm Nomi Nujia-Dean. This podcast is produced by Byron Love and Trevor Grandin and edited by Lisa Rodriguez and Gabe Rosenberg. For more local news and a live stream from Kansas City's NPR station, visit kcur.org. Tomorrow, we'll hear how Kansas City's Russian community is feeling about the conflict in Ukraine and their responsibility to speak out. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you soon.